Welcome to the Human Reboot with me, Emma Last. We have uplifting, inspiring and diverse reboot stories from people sharing the courageous, honest, authentic and sometimes difficult life lessons. The Human Reboot will provide proven mentally flourishing formulas and practical tips to help you to live life to the full, giving you direction and hope. Make your mental fitness and well-being a daily priority. Learn to pause so that you can get clear and perform at your best. Switch off to switch on. It's time for your human reboot. On the Human Reboot podcast today, I have with me Becky Kegula. She's a TEDx international motivational speaker and advocate for inclusion. She also serves as the Disability Equality Index Director at Disability Inn, the leading nonprofit resource for business disability inclusion worldwide. Welcome, Becky. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Please, could you tell us a little bit more about you? Absolutely. I am a person with dwarfism, so I identify as having a physical disability, and this really drives my passion for the work that I currently do and the work that I've done previously. I spent my career, the first decade of my career, working behind the scenes in the entertainment industry, trying to change what we see in the media because that affects how people like me are treated in society. If people consume positive content, they'll treat me with respect. They consume negative content, they may treat me uh, in a fearful, disrespectful manner. I serve on the board of the National Center for Disability Journalism at Arizona State University. And one of the things there is they produce a style guide where it helps people with how you refer to different communities within the disability community. I'm really big on educating people about the importance of inclusion and kindness. I really just getting to know people. I've spoken at over 300 venues, schools, nonprofit organizations, corporations about the importance of being more inclusive of people like me. So those who come after me just won't have as hard of a time fitting into society. Oh, that makes me so proud to have you here today and so excited for the conversation that we're going to have. So please, could you tell us your reboot story? Absolutely. I had mentioned that I worked for a decade behind the scenes in the entertainment industry, and it was not easy trying to figure out how to start my career in a very competitive industry. I actually, right after college, was just gung-ho about working in that industry, even though I knew there would be challenges. I ended up sending out 1,000 resumes and went on 100 interviews over the course of four months. And finally, I was able to land a job at the world's top talent agency, creative artist agency. And in that role, I worked really hard as an assistant in the entertainment marketing department, followed by the comedy touring department, representing comedians from around the world and booking them to have different comedy gigs throughout the world. And Through that experience, I did learn that comedians are not afraid to tell you you're different or speak up. Uh, But if there were some comedians who were disrespectful, I was able to tell the agents about it. So I had a little bit of power because I could tell them that they're not worth representing because they're not kind in their comedy. That was a great experience. I was there for six and a half or five years at the talent agency, but I was never really getting 
the support I needed to be able to promote promote myself from an assistant role to a higher up role. And at that point, I decided to move to another job in television casting at a television studio because I thought I could make an impact on how people with disabilities are represented on television. Unfortunately, the industry is still very slow when it comes to being inclusive of disability, and they tend to hire people who don't have the lived experience of disability to play disability. And then those people get big awards like Emmys and Oscars because it's a big thing that they're playing disability and they should be applauded for it rather than seeking out the actual people who have the disability and lived experience that can authentically portray those types of roles, especially when you think of hospital shows or any shows with medical related plot lines. So I was there for a year. I was working for two people. One person did not want me to be there. One person did. And it was really hard that whole year I was working there, trying to make an impact, trying to share my experience and my passion for making TV more inclusive. And I was kind of pushed out the door after a year. And this was after six and a half years of living across the country from where I grew up. I grew up on the East Coast of the United States and I had moved to the West Coast. So I had to make a really tough decision. Do I want to continue working in an industry that keeps letting me down? Or do I want to go move home to my family who loves me unconditionally and will support me? I was also up against living at home. I had gone from being independent to living at home. But I finally made the decision that it was time to go home and figure out what was next. And during that time, I was able to learn that People wanted to hear my story. They wanted to hear about my experience in Los Angeles. I thought that people didn't want to hear from me because I didn't reach a certain level of quote unquote success in my career, but they wanted to hear about what it was like to be in my shoes, trying to transition to the workforce from college. It didn't matter what level of my career I was in. My sister asked me if I could be a speaker at her school. She's a a middle school teacher. So I continued to practice sharing my story. And then finally, after about seven months of sharing my story for free, someone asked me, what's your rate? And I was able to offer a price to start with. And then I continued to seek out opportunities, paid and unpaid, because I really feel that every experience is important. And it really helped build me up, knowing that people enjoyed hearing my story and my success didn't depend on how I was treated in Los Angeles and the roles that I had there. Ultimately, I ended up moving to New York City after a year and a half and worked at the Actors Union. It's the union that protects all performers in the United States. And then while I was there, I was able to continue to do my speaking, but also have a sense of independence living on my own again, because that was something that was eating away at me, even though I had the support to stay at home as long as I needed to. It was important for me to get out and go spread my wings again. Yeah, I find it so interesting and you're so inspiring. In terms of kind of living independently, what what things do you kind of, can you just move into a normal house, if that makes sense? Or what adaptations do you need, if that makes sense, so that people can understand if how they might be able to help if they came across somebody that was a little person. Absolutely. 
So because of the pandemic, my husband and I actually were both little people, We meaning that we stand <laughs> within four to four, six feet tall. And we bought a house sight unseen. My family, average height, went and saw the house, but we didn't really know what kind of house we were entering ourselves into, but we knew that we wanted to be in the location that we're in now. And it was a bold move because the people who lived here before us were very tall. And some of the things that are things that you can't really move right away are very tall. And it requires us to have a lot of step stools in the house. Someday we would like to lower some of the things that are in the house, but it's not something that you can just easily do and think about how long you're going to, it's important to think about how long you're going to stay at a house. Cause what if that next person isn't going to buy the house because everything's way too low. So it's finding that happy medium. For the most part, we just use step stools right now, but there are some things just because we do plan to be here for a while that we would like to alter eventually. But in the past, like my parents, they bought a house when I was three years old. So they knew going into it that and it was a house that we were able, they were able to build. So from scratch, they were able to put in some requests for accommodations. So we had going from the middle floor of the house to the basement, they were able to put a railing that was lower than the regular railing on the staircase. So I would have something to hold on to while I was going up and down from the basement. And then in the bathroom, they made sure that the light switch was lower enough so I could turn it on and off. Instead of having knob handles on doors in the house, it was important to have handle handles so then I could take get an easier grasp of them. My parents had a crazy idea of putting in an intercom system. So that in my room, the intercom for me was lower, but a storm blew it out a few years later. So we didn't get much use out of it. And then for a lot of other things, we would just have stools in the house if, if I needed to reach something. But in my younger years, they would just be there to assist. I think a lot of people like me feel empowered to want to try something on their own. So it's really important to ask someone if they need assistance rather than just trying to do it for them in any type of setting. And they'll let you know if they need assistance with something. So when you're adapting into a workplace, so thinking about your, you know, like your first role and, and things like that, you know, how accommodating were workplaces to, to adjustments that you perhaps needed? In my early career, I really didn't ask for anything because I think I was just so afraid of not getting the job or not being able to stay at a job because it would be too much to ask for things. But when I got to the job in New York City, they did ask me right away. I think also that just the trend of ergonomic assessors coming to workplaces has become, it just has become a more common thing. So when I was getting my desk set up, they asked me what I needed. And I did ask for a step stool for my desk. And then we got a step stool for the bathroom that I was going to be accessing. And they did have a few kitchens on the floor where we worked, but they've got a stool stool that I could use, a two-step stool in the kitchen that I was closest to. But then a few months later, head of administration had 
a dream or just woke up in the middle of the night and thought, what if Becky wanted to use the other kitchens on the floor or she had a meeting on the other side of the building? Shouldn't we still have a step stool there too? So they went and got those additional step stools. I think it's nice to have people think above and beyond. And I didn't think of it on my own. I just thought I'll take whatever accommodations they're willing to give me. Or if I'm going to use the kitchen, I'll just use the one that has the step stool. But I love when people go above and beyond and they just make it available. Because I think at the end of the day, it becomes something that other people can use too. Yeah, because not everybody is you know, five foot seven, are they? You know, you know, I might be tall, but my mum's quite small. <laughs> we all come in all different just, shapes and sizes. Just over five foot. <clears throat> She'll go mad at me. Five foot one and a half, to be precise. <laughs> That's how tall my mum is. <laughs> so now you're a professional speaker. Tell me about you know, you know, where you speak, you know, where's the best places that you've spoken at and and tell us about your TEDx as well. Absolutely. I did have my first TEDx experience before I moved to New York City and it was about representation in the media, specifically people with disabilities and making sure that the idea worth spreading is that we need to be more thoughtful in the way that we create content because it affects how people are treated. And then fast forward to several years later, I was invited to do another TED Talk where I talked about the fear people have of disability gets in the way of how they treat people with disabilities. They're so fearful that their lives are going to turn into chaos that one may perceive if they don't have the lived experience of disability up until this point in time. And then that fear gets projected on people with disabilities. So they feel bad for us, which then it doesn't allow us to have a chance to participate in the environments that they spend time in because they're blocking us out and they're missing out on talent and the meaning of connection, connecting to people who may not look like you, but there's a lot that we all have inside that we could have in common. So those very challenging to do because I really like to speak from the heart and just a lot of times I give my story in chronological order, but it's trying to figure out how to give a very structured top talk with very specific criteria and just the whole process of getting involved. Of course, there's so much prestige attached to do, delivering TED talks and they were both TEDx talks. Someday the goal would be to do the, the TED main stage talk. But what I've learned from those experiences is that it's really important to find a topic that you're super passionate about because it allows you to overcome any fear you may have of being in front of audiences or speaking publicly because public speaking is the number one fear above death. And for me, what has helped is taking those opportunities, whether they're free or paid, ideally, (laughs) we get more paid speeches. I will be honest, since I did move to New York City for a job, I then took another job at the nonprofit where I work now. I've had consistent full-time employment in addition to the speaking, and I've had the support to do the speaking, but honestly still haven't made enough to live off of in the calendar year. So it's important to know that 
as much as I'm out there and as much as I put myself out there, there's still a long way to go for it to be able to sustain sustain itself as the sole career. But I enjoy being around other people too and participating on panels and conversations in the full-time work that I do. And it aligns with what I speak about. So it is kind of the perfect match. And especially in this virtual world, we've been able to just reach audiences from around the world and not even leave our houses. And that's what I've enjoyed the most, just being able to speak as much as possible and share my story wherever possible. Then those who come after me, hopefully there won't be as much fear. So tell me a bit more about what you do for your day job. So I currently work for an organization that supports businesses with disability inclusion, really tying back to when I struggled to get my first job out of college. We find candidates with disabilities who have college degrees or are in grad school or currently in college and match them with corporations who are ready, willing, and able to hire. They just want to find the talent. So they know going into it that this talent pool has disability all around it, and they're willing to give them a chance. And I specifically run an index that companies take. It's a self-assessment, and it measures how they're doing across their enterprise when it comes to disability inclusion, really making sure disability is part of their diversity effort. Because oftentimes people may say diversity is ethnicity or gender, and they may not think of the other areas of diversity, but we want to intentionally include disability in every conversation so that nobody's left behind. And I suppose it's just getting to a place where no matter what your diversity that you feel like you belong. Absolutely. That is the end goal of everything. Everyone deserves to belong. And we don't want the unemployment rate to be so drastically different between those with disabilities and those without, because employment allows for people to feel that sense of independence and empowered to make a difference. And gives them a purpose and a real sense of well-being. So for me, there's a real connection between diversity and inclusion and mental illness and mental health. And a number of people that I've talked to who may have been in groups that perhaps may be more at risk to mental illness, I've asked them questions around, why is that the case? And often they've said it's because they feel that they have perhaps had more barriers to overcome. So therefore have had kind of more, an increased level of stress maybe compared to someone without a disability. I think obviously those barriers and keep having to overcome those barriers then then can then lead on to mental illness. Is there anything that you could share with us around that that may help us to under us our listeners to understand more around the connection between diversity and inclusion and mental health. Absolutely. And people forget that over 70% of disabilities are not apparent, meaning you can't see them. And mental health is definitely a part of that equation, even though it's often talked about separately, mental health is a disability. So I would say that 
For me, as a person with dwarfism, I'm one of 30,000 people in the U.S. who have dwarfism, but there are 400 types of dwarfism, so we all come in different shapes and sizes, just like everyone in the world. And when we go out in public, especially in major cities where there are a lot of people, we have a chance of coming across a lot of strangers at all different socioeconomic backgrounds and experiences. We are reminded that we're different when we go out in public every day. And it can be daunting and it can tear away at your inside because you're not being accepted into everyday life. And there's a huge connection with the little people community and mental health. And even at the conferences that they have annually, they have some people who wear a certain color t-shirt that are offering themselves up for someone you can talk to if you're going through something on any given day when you're at the conference, because it can be overwhelming. And I think there needs to be more of that, just so people know there's someone there to support them in any environment if they just need to talk. And I will say, even during that reboot story time, I was really struggling because you start doubting yourself when others are doubting you and you don't know what that means for your future. And then with any area of diversity, I think it's just the idea that people are reminded that they're different. And those who remind you that you're different have something going on inside. Otherwise, they wouldn't remind you that you're different. So it's a spiral effect. But if you let someone's opinions or comments get to you, it will tear you down. What advice would you give to somebody that perhaps is from, you know, who may be disabled that is struggling with that at the moment? I would say try your best to not let other people's assumptions of what you are or are not capable of get in the way of what you think you're capable of and what value you have to bring to the world. Because we all were brought here for a reason and have the potential to do great things, even if others try to tear us down in the process. Yeah, we all have strengths and we all have talents. Exactly. Sometimes we have to work hard to try and pull those out, don't we? Because naturally it's just not something that we are often that good at at doing. We're not that great at shouting about the things we're great at. And I think I would say find something that you're passionate about if you're able to and do as much of that as you can and do less of those things that make you upset. Absolutely. So on the Human Reboot, we always ask, how do you switch off so that you can switch on and perform at your best? Because we don't want our high achievers burning out. (laughs) That is a great question. Well, I am about to have a baby. It'll be my first child. And I am working very hard to prepare to switch off and have that be my sole focus once the baby does arrive in two months. And it is a struggle because it's been a very busy time and I've, I've gotten a lot of momentum, especially with the speaking and with my career, it's all in a really great place. So even when I started making it known <laughs> that a baby's on the way and, and people reminded me that I need to take some time to slow down, it was hard to take that reality in. And I still kind of lose sleep over it, just thinking about it, because life will be different. And I will have to be okay with 
doing as much as I can in a day, but leaving the rest for the next day or the next day or the next day. And maybe I need to also just redefine what it means to be successful. Because if I can also be a super successful parent, but do what I can when it comes to the speaking and the advocacy, but maybe a little less traveling than I'm used to, especially in the past year and a half, I haven't traveled too much. Everything's been virtual, but I think it's going to be challenging, but I know that it needs to happen, that I need to flip the switch and really just focus on that. And that, and that sounds like that's going to be another job in itself. So I'm not really going to be uh, resting per se, but I think it's going to be a big reality that hits me trying to make that balance. And I hope that I can successfully turn off the switch and ease back into it, but not get overwhelmed. Well, you are very welcome to come along to my next training that I've got because we do talk a lot about healthy boundaries, very much about not, you know, as mums, as high achievers, you know, not not burning out, you know. So it's interesting that you said you're going to have to perhaps redefine that vision. And actually, that's one of the first things that we do is redefine what is the vision that you want and actually how do you make what are the boundaries that you need to have to make that happen? So, yeah, so that's that's really interesting. So, lovely. I also just talk about, and just the way I do the speaking and presentations are really just trying to make life easier for the next generation of people like me. And my, my child will also have dwarfism. And if I can do the best I can to be the best mom possible, hopefully that can still reach that same goal and impact. Absolutely. So have you got a personal flourishing formula for living? So that could be any mental fitness tips, maybe a mantra that you live by, anything really that, you know, maybe is part of your daily habits um, that you could share with us that might help our listeners. I truly believe anything's possible. And people may laugh sometimes and say, are you sure? But I'm willing to challenge it anyone, anytime someone tells me that it isn't because it's important to get up. And I would say just ritual-wise, it's usually related to maybe I do have a bad day. Like we we're talking about mental health and just, just exhausted, <laughs> mental exhaustion. My dad always reminds me that you can be sad this day, but get up tomorrow and start a new day and be positive. And it'll just feel better. And I've also had friends tell me, try dressing up as much as you can, because then the confidence will exude. And in this past year, it's been hard to feel motivated (laughs) to dress up. But I really do feel like starting new days, dressing up, and not letting others get in the way of what I think is possible are really what's helped me get through. I I think you're absolutely amazing. and. Do you know what there is? I think you should like listen to to the podcast. Oh, I can't remember what number it is. Um, Ivy Chanel. She talks about there's no ceilings on our dreams. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're, yeah, yes. yeah. There is no ceiling on our dreams. No. So yeah, anything is possible. Love that. So, are there any books or communities? or podcasts or anything that you could recommend to our listeners that might help them 
maybe understand your journey or learn in the way that you've learned? I think what would be helpful, just kind of education and etiquette, maybe checking out the Little People of America website called lpaonline.org. And then the National Center for Disability Journalism, that style guide is just brilliant, talking about how different people within the disability community want to be referred to. But really remember at the end of the day that everyone wants to be referred to first by their name, and then you get to know them and they can start to tell you kind of the intricacies of what their preferences are when it comes to terminology. Absolutely. Well, Becky, you have been absolutely amazing. And if anyone would like to um, get in touch with you or find out more about what you do, how are they best to do that? My brand is Becky Motivates. So you can just go to beckymotivates.com and all my social media handles are related to Becky Motivates or Becky Kakula. And we will put pop those in the show notes. Yes. So what I would say is you might be a little person, but you're definitely, definitely a big person to me. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're wonderful. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me on the Human Reboot. Thanks for having me. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Human Reboot podcast. I'm Emma Last. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star podcast review and visit thehumanrebootmovement.com where you can find downloadable free resources, sign up to my mailing list or connect with me on social. So that's thehumanrebootmovement.com. Let's switch off so we can switch on. It's time for your human reboot.